This hearing in the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa and Global Health will come to order. I want to take a moment to thank our, witness, uh, our witnesses for arranging schedules to be here today and for your contribution to this hearing. Uh, today's hearing will focus on the political and security crisis in Burundi, where violence is increasing, instability is growing, mass arrests, high-profile assassinations, and the killing of more than 200 people have caused at least 220,000 Burundians to flee the country. Uh, President Nkurunziwa's uh, decision to uh, run for a third term in office is widely viewed as a catalyst for this crisis, which has splintered his own party and hardened the line between his supporters and those who oppose him. But the roots of today's crisis precede the most recent elections in Burundi. Uh, today, we'll examine Burundi's history, the Arusha Accord that ended its civil war, and uh, how we can go back to the spirit of that agreement uh, to uh, end the conflict. This uh, particular part of the world has been borne witness to many mass atrocities, obviously, Burundi's 12-year civil war is among them. And as we look to what has uh, contributed to the breakdown of governance in Burundi, uh, today it's important to pay attention to the ethnic underpinnings of this and uh, previous conflicts. Understanding the role that other actors in the region are playing is critical to understanding how to stop the violence in Burundi. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses on how the other actors are influencing the conflict there and perhaps uh, for their own benefit um, and what options are available to the United States to weigh in. Unfortunately, uh, President Nkurunziwa is not the only leader of an African nation with the desire to hang on to a seat longer than is permitted. In the Great Lakes region alone, there are several elections coming up next year where the current leaders may well seek re-election through various means. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses, uh, hear what they think about the current crisis here, what it pretends for these elections, uh, and if we can expect similar outcomes from those who choose to stay in power longer. Uh, if so, uh, how will these different crises intertwine and uh, what will be the regional implications, and lastly, again, what should the United States be saying about these elections? Bottom line is that uh, the violence in Burundi needs to stop. The stakes are simply too high uh, for these events to escalate. Uh, with that, I'll turn and recognize the ranking minority member on this committee, Senator Martin, for any comments thank, you might have. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you so much for having this very important and timely hearing. Um, it's a critical moment for Burundi, the Great Lakes region of Africa, as well as for the wider African and international communities. As President Obama said last July when uh, Chairman Flake and I traveled with him to Africa, the continent's progress is impressive. It is one of the fastest growing regions in the world, with a middle class projected to grow to more than one billion consumers. Africa is moving fast towards a better future, with millions reaching for opportunities that did not exist just a few years ago. It is important to keep this larger picture in mind as we focus today on Burundi, a country that has experienced deep political division and escalating political violence since last spring. Since the Arusha Accords ended Burundi's civil war in 1993, the country has continued to face challenges, but its politics have been relatively free of violence. While the international community and the United Nations have played a critical role in this process, all of the credit for the advances up until last spring rightly go to the Burundian people and its leaders. 
and government, opposition and civil society, who consciously worked towards national harmony. With the political turmoil that began last spring, it has become apparent that the work of over 20 years could come undone unless all of the leaders of Burundi take seriously their solemn duty to find common ground, to seriously negotiate ways to accommodate one another's legitimate interests, and to guarantee that the security and fundamental rights of all of Burundi's people are protected. The people of Burundi have suffered enough. A grinding poverty is accompanied by ongoing turmoil, including mass arrests, several high-profile assassinations, and over 200 reported extrajudicial killings since April. At least 210,000 Burundians have now fled into neighboring countries. An armed conflict in Burundi could draw in neighboring countries and non-state actors elsewhere in the conflict-torn Great Lakes region. The consequences in terms of Burundi and the region could be devastating. We are committed to helping Burundi change course, to turn away from violence, and for political rivals to sincerely negotiate with each other and make common cause for the good of all of the people of Burundi. That is why this hearing is so important, and I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for uh, calling for it. Uh, we very much appreciate the witnesses' uh, willingness to join us today, uh, and I look forward to hearing your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Uh, the only witness in this first panel is uh, Assistant Secretary Thomas Greenfield. Thank you for being here. We know that you're busy. Uh, and uh, you know how much uh, uh, you travel to the region and uh, the time you put in. We appreciate you being here. Obviously, your entire speech will be, or our comments will be made part of the record. Please, you can keep it close to five minutes and we'll have time and have the next panel as well. So we look forward to your testimony. Assistant Secretary. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Flake and Ranking Member Markey for the opportunity to testify before you today on Burundi. As you noted, the situation in Burundi uh, is very worrisome and the stakes are very high. Uh, the Department of State and the Bureau of African Affairs in particular greatly appreciate the bipartisan support we continue to receive for our work, our embassies, and our people who spend every day striving to promote U.S. national security, foreign policy, and economic interests on the African continent. In Central Africa, we've focused on our core values, strengthening democratic institutions, spurring economic growth, advancing peace and security, and promoting opportunity and development. Occupying significant attention over the past year, however, uh, is Burundi. Uh, Burundi has sadly become a cautionary tale for the region about how a leader who will do anything to stay in power can undermine a decade of peace and post-conflict reconciliation. President Nkurunziza's pursuit of non-inclusive non-consensual elections as characterized by the African Union's October 17th communique sparked the current crisis. His decision also clearly violated terms of the 2000 Arusha Agreement that led to the end of the Burundian Civil War and became the country's foundation for governance, peace, and security. Since the discredited elections last summer, the crisis in Burundi has worsened. With Nkurunziza in isolation, and his government taking an increasingly hard line against any form of perceived opposition or critique, even from within their ruling party ranks. 
a daily pattern of retaliatory attacks between security forces and armed elements of the opposition has continued for months. The repression and violence has forced over 220,000 Burundians to flee the country over the last eight months, and the UN Office of the High Commissioner of Refugees has documented at least 240 killings of individuals in Burundi in the same time frame. In response to these troubling events, we've pursued a, an aggressive three-pronged strategy to prevent mass violence. First, we are directing pressure at the government of Burundi and armed oppositions to step back from increasingly violent actions, as well as rhetoric. Secondly, we're accelerating the launch of a credible dialogue process under African leadership to find a political solution. And thirdly, we are reaching out to the region and international community uh, to encourage their support while supporting regional contingency planning by the AU in case the violence worsens. We believe that our pressure on and direct engagement with the government of Burundi and with opposition leaders, as well as our broader outreach to the region and international community has positively impacted the situation. It has done so both by helping to sta stave off what we feared could have been wider spread violence and pro by providing a window to press for regional efforts to support a political solution through internationally mediated dialogue but that window cannot last indefinitely. The underlying calculus of those in the government that they will use all means necessary to retain power has not changed. In addition to our suspension of in-country training support for Burundian military and law enforcement and the withdrawal of AGOA trade benefits effective January of 2016, President Obama issued an executive order on November 23rd imposing economic sanctions and travel ban on four individuals two from the government side, and two of the May coup plotters. The implementation of a sanctions regime underscores the seriousness with which we view the severity of the crisis and demonstrates the president's commitment to using all the tools available to discourage violence and encourage a political resolution. We will not hesitate to add additional individuals to the list. We're in daily contact with members of the Burundi government and opposition, as well as regional leaders. Our senior leaders, including President Obama, as well as Secretary Kerry, have engaged with stakeholders in Burundi and throughout the region with the top line message to refrain from violence and pursue dialogue. In November, President Obama delivered a video message directly to the Burundian people in which he called on all the country leaders to seek a peaceful solution for the country through dialogue. And this was very well received in Burundi. Special Envoy Periello has spent the bulk of the past three months in the region and in Europe, including an emergency deployment to Burundi to deter the launch of the government's planned security operation in early November, which we feared could have instigated much more widespread violence. Ambassador Liberi and our embassy staff have worked around the clock under intense circumstances to maintain crucial lines of communication and provide a voice for peace and human rights. We cannot afford further delay of the dialogue process without risking an escalation in repression and violence. With the process currently entrusted to Ugandan President Museveni on behalf of the East African community, we continue to hope to see dialogue initiated in, a very in the very near future. If it is not, and the crisis deteriorates further, uh, possibly into full-scale war, 
I fear that President Museveni and the EAC could end up being partially blamed, blamed given the lengthy delays in getting a process started. We have encouraged the EAC leaders, as well as those in the broader region, to support peace and dialogue and to ensure that this crisis does not become another protracted regional conflict, dominating the continent's time and resources. We strongly support the commencement of dialogue, active AU leadership, and the need for a full-time mediator. At the same time, other regional leaders are contemplating efforts to extend their own terms in office beyond constitutional limits. President Obama articulated the U.S. position very clearly in Addis Ababa when you both were there in July, when he said that Africa's democratic progress is put at risk when leaders refuse to step aside at the end of their, their terms. Leaders who try to change the rules to stay in, in power solely for personal gain risk instability and strife in their countries. We're seeing this play out in Burundi and the Republic of Congo as well as els elsewhere. Our policy position enjoys overwhelming support across Africa. This is, in the words of Secretary Kerry, a decisive moment for democracy in Africa. The steps that we take now to encourage peaceful transitions of power may encourage other leaders in the region from following Burundi's path and encourage them to make the right decision for their countries and their people. Senator Flake, Ranking Member Markey, and members of, of the subcommittee, I want to thank you again for holding this hearing and giving us the opportunity to brief you on the situation in Burundi. And I hope the information is useful to the subcommittee. I've submitted a much longer version of my uh, testimony for the record, and I'm happy to answer your questions. Well, thank you. Um, really appreciate this. As you know, um, some, some of the coalition of opposition leaders this era have made it clear that uh, um, no peace will be possible as long as Nkurunziza um, remains in power. Uh, he is uh, committed, has no intention, it seems, of, of stepping down. Um, what's going to give? And, uh, well, first, is this uh, just a who blinks here, or is there going to be pressure from the AC and others that, uh, that break the logjam? Uh, we're trying every way to encourage all of the regional uh, partners to put pressure on uh, President Nkurunziza, as well as the opposition, to go to the negotiating table uh, to start a dialogue process. Uh, the EAC's early attempts uh, did not work. Uh, they have turned the process over to uh, President uh, Museveni. And uh, right now, uh, our special envoy, uh, Pirello, is in Uganda and hoping to encourage that uh, the Ugandans step up their efforts in uh, pushing for uh, and starting the dialogue. But we're also putting pressure on, on the AU. We've had a number of conversations with the AU. And in fact, uh, the AU uh, deployed a, uh, a special envoy or a representative of the AU chairperson, uh, that's President uh, Yayiboni of, uh, of Benin, was sent to uh, Burundi. Uh, yesterday. Unfortunately, his plane was not allowed to land, uh, but their efforts uh, will continue, and we're hopeful that eventually we'll get someone in. And uh, it's important that uh, the president, President Nkurunziza, meet with the parties uh, and start this process uh, so that we can see some solution to uh, what is happening there. 
I would assume it's a little difficult for somebody like Museveni, who's been there since 1986 uh, and is planning to run again, uh, to speak with much credibility on leaving after the two terms that the Arusha Accord uh, spells out. Um, you talked about some of the sanctions that we've imposed on individuals, travel sanctions, uh, other uh, uh, suspensions of, uh, of other programs that we have. What additional leverage do we have uh, as far as the U.S. goes? I, I think we can impose uh, additional sanctions to the ones that we have already imposed. Uh, we also have uh, additional leverage uh, as it relates to other partners. We're working closely with the EU. They have just concluded uh, what they refer to as Article 96 negotiations with the government. They were key contributors to uh, budgetary support uh, for the Burundi government. Those uh, discussions with the EU did not go well, uh, which uh, leads uh, to the next step, which would be uh, they're ending their support uh, for, the, uh, for the government, and we are working very closely with them as they move forward on, on those efforts, as well as supporting efforts to uh, impose additional sanctions on additional individuals. There, let's talk about the, uh, the region and other actors there and other influences on this. Uh, there have been reports that the Rwandan government is uh, secretly recruiting an army of Burundian refugees, uh, presumably for the purpose of conducting uh, some kind of armed insurgency inside Burundi. There was a letter to the editor in the Washington Post uh, in November written by uh, Jeff uh, Drumtra, um, former UN official, uh, who, who outlines this, what he saw there in those camps. If these reports are true, uh, what is the State Department doing to press the uh, Rwandan government from um, from doing this, from stepping up recruiting efforts like this, or to stop these recruiting efforts? Uh, sir, we've seen these reports, uh, and we have uh, had a number of conversations with the Rwandan government to encourage them to investigate the reports and any efforts that are being made within refugee camps in the borders of, uh, of uh, Rwanda should be stopped. Uh, we're encouraging uh, the Rwandans as well to be uh, more proactive in supporting the peace process, and we're also, we've also had discussions with them to discourage any actions uh, being taken by the Rwandan government to support uh, uh, additional violence that might take place in, in the region. Do you put stock in those reports yourself? I, I, I have seen uh, reports coming from UNHCR. Uh, we work closely with UNHCR, and I trust that if they are reporting this, they have seen the basis uh, for making these, uh, these, these reports and allegations. Let's talk about the DRC for a minute. What pressures are coming from the DRC? Uh, again, additionally, we have had conversations with uh, President Kabila over the past two years, uh, and probably even longer, uh, to discuss with him his uh, uh, efforts to change the Constitution so that he might seek a third term. Uh, fortunately, the Constitution doesn't allow that change in DRC, and I continue to be hopeful uh, that he will make the right decision and not run for a third term and keep uh, the country uh, moving in, in, in the right direction and not turn back uh, the very meager democratic gains that they have made over, over the past 10 years. Uh, our special envoy has as well been 
uh, to uh, DRC on a number of occasions. Uh, Secretary Kerry was there uh, last year as well, and we continue to have conversations with the president on, on this issue. What kind of border pressures and issues are there with the DRC? I'm sorry? What kind of border pressures are there? Uh, we have the, with Rwanda, you have the refugees going across and allegedly being uh, used by the Rwandan government. Uh, what are we seeing in terms of refugees going into the we, We're seeing refugees cross into all of uh, Burundi's neighbors. Uh, in addition to Rwanda, Tanzania has more than 50,000 refugees. DRC has uh, a large number of refugees as well as uh, Uganda. Uh, also in the case of DRC, there are armed groups that uh, armed groups that are based in DRC, and some fear that those groups might uh, uh, participate in the uh, in the violence in in that country. So it's a very volatile situation along that border. Some were surprised that uh, that Nkuran Ziza, when he was uh, outside of the country, and there was a staged coup, that uh, he was able to maintain or regain control when he returned. Is he in a stronger position now? Um, is it just, and if he is, is it just because the opposition uh, is, is uh, splintered so much? You know, I, uh, we regret that coup uh, uh, taking place. We don't support those kinds of, uh, of actions and we've made that very clear. Uh, but I do not believe the president is in a stronger position. Uh, I think because of the, the, the decision to seek a third term, he, is, he has weakened his, his position significantly, both within his party as well as outside of his party. And the uh, information that we're getting from inside of Burundi is that he's in isolation. Uh, he's, not in the, he's not in the capital. And I don't think when he made the decision to run for a third term that he thought he was going to be president of a country that was uh, imploding. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that uh, implosion is a result of his decision. Right. Senator Markey. Um, thank you, and uh, thank you for all your good work on this issue. So the president of uh, Uganda is the mediator, but he has his own tough election next year. So he's going to be distracted in terms of his role, mm -hmm. huh? and that creates a problem, mm -hmm. uh, a political you know, uh, <clears throat> distraction uh, when we need um, something that's real and now and an intervention with some passion and immediacy, you know, to solve the problem. Um, should the UN, in your opinion, send in Chapter 7 peacekeepers at this time in, in order to help to keep the peace? Uh, President Museveni uh, is uh, engaged in his election and I think very much distracted from the process. I, I think when he took on this responsibility from the Tanzanians, uh, he hoped that it could be resolved quickly. Uh, he has assigned his Minister of Defense uh, to oversee the negotiations and uh, again, they have not, uh, as of yet, bore any fruit. Yeah, but that, again, that's a lot different than the... Yeah. Than the president, president of a country. He know. actually traveled there himself. I know that. Uh, I was just so, saying, over the next several months here. You yeah, know. we're hopeful that uh, this process, that the AU will become more actively engaged in the negotiations uh, and take this burden uh, away from uh, uh, from President Museveni. And what is what is Zuma saying to us? Uh, she she's very engaged. As I mentioned earlier, she just de deployed uh, her own uh, special representative. Um, President uh, Boniyayi to uh, to Burundi. 
we have not had an opportunity to speak to him uh, about what his, his tasks are, but we saw that as a positive sign. Um, the Hutu are organizing along ethnic lines um, and uh, militarizing along ethnic lines, and that's always kind of a prelude to uh, a failed state. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and this um, division that's developing uh, more along armed uh, lines between the, the Hutu and the Tutsi and uh, how that ethnic traditional rivalry is now affecting the politics and the, the difficulty in finding a political resolution? Uh, you know, Senator, actually we are buoyed by the fact that the ethnic uh, part of this conflict has not taken root yet. Uh, it's, it's a concern, uh, but- do you, do you see militarization um, developing along ethnic lines? There is some militarization developing, but it's also within the ranks of the Hutu. Uh, as well as among the Tutsis, but I don't think the divisions are as sharp yet as they might become. Uh, we're worried about that happening, but at this point that has not happened. I think the military has uh, been uh, particularly, uh, 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 has particularly avoided that. And again, we're seeing conflict within, uh, within the Hutu ranks, within the president's party. Uh, so this is not yet one that has divided along those two uh, fissures, which I think would be uh, a really uh, serious uh, step in the in the wrong direction. Can I? What is your view about the suitability of the East African community to be able to deal with a problem of this magnitude? Is that really within their capacity to uh, respond in a way that's going to avoid a, a civil war? It could be in their capacity. They have not uh, been able to successfully uh, achieve, uh, achieve that because there are tensions within the EAC as it relates to Burundi. Uh, there are tensions between, clearly between Burundi and, and Rwanda, but also tensions between Rwanda and Tanzania. Uh, and those tensions have caused uh, the EAC not to uh, be as effective as they, as they might have been. Uh, and for that reason, we do think uh, having the AU uh, take on this, uh, this role would, uh, uh, would be a good thing. Does that point more towards a UN Chapter 7 peacekeeping mission? I, uh, I don't think we have reached that point yet. Uh, we have uh, been in discussion with the AU uh, about uh, moving forward on uh, contingency planning so that uh, if there is a need for a... Um, uh, a protection force in Burundi, that the AU would be able to pull that together very, very quickly. We've also been in discussion with the UN about the possibilities of using uh, troops out of uh, DRC who are along the border uh, to provide protection. Um, the Chapter 7 discussions have not taken place yet. Uh, tell us a little bit, if you could, about your targeted measures against individuals in the country and who you're talking about and what those measures might be. Okay, we, we have um, uh, designated four individuals uh, thus far for, um, uh, for targeted sanctions. Uh, and uh, the, it was two from the government side and two who were involved in the, uh, in the failed coup plot. 
Uh, we're looking at individuals who have uh, been responsible for exacerbating the instability in Burundi, who have contributed to the violence, and who are standing in the way of peace. Uh, so again, there are two right now on the government side, <clears throat> uh, and two on the on on the uh, I, on the opposition side. Okay, thank you. Um, and we're looking at others as well. Yeah, I think from my perspective, as I look at this, um, in the absence of actual regional forces stepping up to deal with this issue, I think it should telescope the time frame that it takes for the UN um, to uh, consider an active peacekeeping intervention. Uh, if we're waiting for all these countries on the sidelines to finally get their act together, it may be too late, and the ethnic divisions become so um, strong uh, that putting the country back together again uh, is, becomes very difficult. So uh, I, would, I would recommend that you look at that and just make a clear-eyed judgment as to whether or not they're going to be able to resolve their own political differences in the, in the surrounding countries. And if not, then I just think we have to uh, ask the UN to act. Uh, there, is, uh, there are discussions uh, and plans for Security Council uh, trip to Burundi uh, early next year, yeah. and I think uh, uh, that, as well as many other issues, will be on their uh, on their plate to consider. Yeah. So I just think it's it's pretty clear that the president of Uganda is distracted. The other countries have their own political, you know, considerations. Uh, and meanwhile, in the middle here is a president who is uh, not really as concerned with the overall long-term historic well-being of his country. And I just think we have a big role that we can play in the intervention. The sooner we make the intervention is the sooner everyone else is going to have to pay attention as well. You know, I, don't, I think this is a problem Africa should be solving. And I think the sooner, the sooner we get in is the sooner they'll say, we're going to solve it for you. Uh, we should take this role, but uh, I think it has to happen soon. Anyway, thank you so much for all your great thank work. Thank you, sir. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Flake and uh, Ranking Member Markey uh, for holding this hearing uh, that I think is so important. Uh, and thank you. Uh, great to see you again, Assistant Secretary, and thank you for your tireless and dedicated work and your focus on this issue. The United States uh, and the world uh, are watching what's happening in Burundi. Uh, back in August, uh, I had the opportunity to lead a bipartisan CODEL uh, to Rwanda, where we visited uh, the memorial to the victims of genocide of 1994. Uh, members of this Congress are committed to not letting such a stain on humanity happen again. And so we are uh, eager to work with you and the administration to make sure that we are deploying all the uh, capabilities and resources of the U.S. government to meaningfully engage with this. The Burundian government and the opposition uh, must pursue a negotiated peace process, as you said in your testimony. Uh, each day without credible peace talks uh, is being read as a permission slip for the government or the opposition to escalate repression and violence, and we cannot let that happen. Uh, there needs to be accountability for those who have been fomenting violence, and uh, as you've discussed, what's happening in Burundi is also important because it can affect uh, the future of other countries in the region, not least of which uh, the DRC as they prepare uh, for their elections, and it's my hope that uh, President Kabila takes uh, the appropriate lessons uh, from what's happening in Burundi, uh, and that he should not aspire uh, to mire his country in even greater conflict by going down the uh, ill-conceived path of uh, President Nkurunziza. Uh, regional leaders like Ugandan President Museveni uh, have a critical role to play. Uh, re regional structures like the East African community and the AU do. Uh, our President uh, Barack Obama has spoken of African solutions to African problems. 
and when it comes to a security and political crisis uh, like the one we're seeing in Burundi, uh, regional leaders need to partner uh, with the international community and with us uh, to develop a meaningful solutions. So I'm grateful for your focus on this, Mr. Chairman, and uh, for your leadership. Um, tell me if you would just answers to three uh, brief questions. Um, what greater role can Congress play in preventing uh, mass atrocities, uh, specifically in Burundi, but also elsewhere, elsewhere around the world? I know uh, Senator Cardin uh, is working on a mass atrocity um, board authorization bill, but I'd be interested in your view on what Congress can do here in Burundi as well as around the world. Um, second, just tell us a little bit more, if you would, about uh, our efforts to support contingency planning uh, by the UN, by the AU, by the EAC. Um, and tell me, if you would, under what conditions you would seek additional authorities or funding from Congress uh, for either stabilization assistance or humanitarian assistance related to Burundi. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator, and it's great to see you. Uh, and again, thank you for everything that uh, you're doing to support our efforts. In terms of the role of Congress, uh, there are a number of things you, you can do, particularly these kinds of hearings, uh, gives uh, a tremendous amount of, um, of uh, highlight to this issue. Uh, both uh, here in Washington, but also in Africa. Uh, it amazes me the extent to which I hear from Africans what I say and what you say in these hearings. And they need to know that uh, our Congress, um, our Senate is, is engaged on this issue. So that's the first thing and you're already doing it and it, it really does uh, make a, a huge difference. The kinds of trips uh, that uh, you have taken uh, to Rwanda and delivering uh, uh, the tough messages so that um, uh, countries know that there's no light between the Congress and the administration on this issue is important. They need to hear from you on, on a regular basis uh, that you support uh, the efforts, you support the policy, uh, and you, uh, you are demanding uh, the change. I sometimes use you uh, when I'm in meetings with, uh, uh, with heads of state, if I don't do this, my Congress is going to be on my head. Uh, you need to make a difference because it's not just me saying this, but the entire U.S. government, including our Congress, is, is, is a part of, uh, of the process. So having a strong unified message from the Senate uh, to uh, President uh, Nkurunziza, he looks for divisions. Uh, within us, uh, and those divisions are used. So having that message to deliver to him in no uncertain terms, or any uh, of these heads of state in the region, I think, again, gets, uh, uh, gets the message across in a strong way. Uh, in terms of contingency planning, uh, I'm very, we were very pleased to hear from the AU that they have now uh, intensified their contingency planning efforts. Uh, we have been in conversation with them for uh, probably the last uh, eight months to uh, push contingency planning forward. Uh, we have offered uh, some of our planners uh, to support their effort, and that offer is still on the table, and they are moving forward with this, as well as uh, having conversations with the East African Standby Force. Uh, the important uh, element of putting together a contingency plan is what troops will be used and to make sure that we have troops that are, um, are have 
the support of both sides uh, and who are not uh, seen to be taking sides. So it's really important that we encourage uh, some of the countries who are outside of the region, uh, the immediate region, to participate in uh, any uh, troop um, uh, deployments that we make in, in the uh, region. The EC has, EC has indicated their support uh, for this effort, and we're in constant conversation with, uh, uh, with the EU. Uh, in fact, the five envoys, uh, the EU envoy and our envoy, AU, uh, UN, and the Belgium envoy are traveling together in the region right now and are, are putting together a very strong uh, uh, front for, uh, uh, to uh, respond to this. And then in terms of funding, of course the humanitarian side is, is huge. The humanitarian impact of what is happening in Burundi is, uh, uh, can't go uh, unnoticed. Uh, 220,000 refugees is not a small number. When we start looking at those numbers in Europe, uh, we, we think they're huge. They're huge in Africa as well. Uh, and we need to be able to provide and support, provide the support to refugees and respond to the humanitarian crisis that uh, is coming out of this with, uh, with robust funding. And uh, the U.S. government's funding has been critical uh, to support of, of refugees. But we also have to look at what we do on uh, building uh, the capacity of uh, civil society as well as governments. Uh, to build uh, strong governance. And uh, we have worked closely uh, with uh, civil society and even the parties uh, in Burundi in the early days, but certainly uh, we had limited uh, resources in, in that area. And we need to do more. We need to do more to uh, support uh, good governance and, and build institutions that are, are strong and that people have uh, confidence in. Uh, we see when we do that, it works. Uh, it has worked in Burundi. It has worked in Nigeria. Uh, it has worked in Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, and it can work in, in Central Africa uh, with the uh, right amount of resources to, uh, uh, to put into, into play. Terrific. Thank you, Mr. Mad Madam Assistant Secretary. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, Chairman, or, uh, Senator Markey brought up the prospect of this, you know, devolving into some kind of ethnic conflict like we've seen in that area obviously before. You mentioned that uh, gratefully it's not there. Uh, what are the warning signs that we're looking for that as we, where's the tipping point there when it becomes an ethnic conflict? Uh, what should we be looking for there? Uh, we have seen some warning signs already. Uh, several weeks ago, the language coming out of the president and uh, the president of the Senate uh, were very alarmist. Uh, they were using references that we saw uh, used during the, um, uh, prior to the start of the genocide in Rwanda. Uh, we pulled out all the stops uh, during a, a very short period of time to highlight what we were hearing, uh, including uh, making calls to, uh, uh, to the government to say, we, we are hearing what you are saying and it is not acceptable. Uh, but we also gave that mes message to, uh, to, to leaders around the region. And I think they heard it, and I think we were able uh, to uh, actually stave off uh, this turning into that kind of ex ethnic uh, violence. There was clearly an effort to make a call. 
uh, to, to people to respond in, in, in that way. Uh, I think the Burundian people resist it. And uh, we have to hope that they continue to resist. We have to continue to give them the wherewithal to resist uh, these calls. Uh, so there are some signs. Uh, it, hasn't, it, it hasn't gotten to the point yet where we can call it a, a, a solid line drawn ethnic conflict because once that happens, I think it'll be hard to turn it back. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. With that, uh, the appreciation of the committee, thank you for being here and we'll make time for the second committee, but thank you, Assistant Secretary Thomas Greenfield for being here and for all your hard work and thank you for always uh, keeping us informed and, uh, and working with us on this. So Good. appreciate it. Thank you very much. We'll have a two-minute break while the second panel takes uh, its place. Thank you. Appreciate the second panel being in place, and uh, Senator Markey will be back momentarily, so we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Dr. Joseph Siegel, Director of Research, Africa Center for Strategic Studies, where he, his work focuses on uh, ongoing and long-term security challenges uh, for African nations. Thank you for being here. Uh, Terry Verkulen is a Project Director for Central Africa and the International Crisis Group joined us today all the way from Nairobi, so thank you for being here. And Vinny Namaraba, um, Dean's Assistant and Director for Violence Prevention Program, School of Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason University. Thank you for being here. Look forward to your testimony and uh, we'll go with Dr. Stiegel. Siegel. All right, good afternoon, uh, Chairman Flake. And, uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today about the crisis in Burundi. While frequently characterized 
uh, in ethnic terms, the crisis in Burundi today is actually political in nature. It's an outcome of a political leader and a small cadre of allies aiming to per perpetuate their hold on power past their constitutionally mandated term limits. This has triggered a breakdown in Burundi's popular and heretofore effective process of building a multi-ethnic democratic transition since the conclusion of the country's 12-year civil war in 2005, in which an estimated 300,000 Burundians lost their lives. While there are pathways to resolving this crisis, it's important that a resolution be found quickly before the human costs worsen and the situation deteriorates to a point where any such solution becomes much more difficult and costly. Finding a solution in Burundi has broader implications for the region as well. Already the Burundi crisis has created a burden for its neighbors with the 223,000 refugees, mostly in Rwanda and Tanzania. This is exacting a prolonged economic and social burden uh, for these countries. Africa's Great Lakes region also has been host to some of the most prolonged, vicious, and complicated conflicts uh, on the continent over the past two decades. Further escalation in Burundi could at any time precipitate uh, military intervention by neighboring Rwanda, where the memories of genocide remain fresh. And this in turn may spark a military response from other neighbors worried about Rwanda's influence in the region, recalling previous conflicts in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Likewise, there are reports that Rwandan Hutu rebel groups operating out of the DRC, notably the Interahamwe, have been coming into Burundi in support of uh, government-aligned militias there. Similarly, the uh, outcome of the term limits battle in Burundi has political implications for the rest of Africa. Since 2000, there have been a dozen African leaders who have tried to circumvent term limits that were institu instituted um, to uh, limit the monopolization of power, of power and foster a culture of democratic transition in Africa. Half of those leaders were successful in extending their time in office. The other half, however, facing concerted domestic and international opposition were not. And in fact, the trend since 2010 has been to block uh, such attempted circumventions. The outcome in, in Burundi, therefore, uh, will impact the norm on the continent, where 19 of the 54 African leaders have been in power for more than a decade. Furthermore, the tactics used in Burundi in pursuing a third term, overriding the Constitution, bullying opponents, and then holding rump elections, uh, these set a particularly destabilizing precedent in Africa if it's allowed to stand. Now, despite the serious challenges involved, the crisis in uh, Burundi is amenable to resolution. It's, it's not rooted in deep structural differences within Burundian society. Moreover, a framework for resolution already exists in the Arusha Accords that have guided the country out of its civil war. These accords are, are a popular social contract among uh, Burundi's ethnically diverse population, and uh, they are nothing less than, uh, they have become nothing less than a part of the social fabric and a national identity in Burundi as part of its vision for a multi-ethnic democratic society. So any diplomatic efforts we uh, pursue should make clear that the Arusha Accords are the, are the starting point for this. So working in collaboration with regional mediation efforts, the United States can reinforce the Arusha political framework in the following five ways. First, 
to support the creation of a multi-party transitional government in Burundi. The purpose of the transitional government model and experiences of Burkina Faso, Guinea, and Mali is to chart a course back to the constitutional framework of a free, fair, participatory electoral process. And these institutional mechanisms were in place earlier in the year before the April announcement. And consequently, the objective of this transitional phase would be to reestablish this democratic trajectory. Second would be to support the deployment of an international peacekeeping force um, in order for a political resolution and, and, and to foster a stable transition to the Bruneian crisis, um, the United States should logistically and financially support an international peacekeeping force under the auspices of the African Union and the United Nations. Such a force would serve as a buffer between rival armed groups to minimize the risk of escalation, enhance civilian protection, as well as to serve as a deterrent to the provocations that could trigger mass atrocities. Third would be to sanction spoilers the White House decision to issue targeted sanctions on four individuals most responsible for the political violence is an effective way to demonstrate to Burundi's political elites that, uh, that there are personal costs for their actions. The European Union and the African Union have also imposed sanctions on individuals and entities, but the US should be prepared to expand the scope and breadth of these sanctions as a way of exerting greater pressure on Burundian political actors. Fourth, uh, all non-statutory Forces should be disbanded, and uh, a forensic accounting should be made to identify those responsible for funding them. Given the uh, central and unaccountable role that militias, particularly the Mbanarakure, are playing in intimidating and inflicting violence on the civilian population in Burundi, the United States should support the disbanding of these groups as part of any peacekeeping mandate. Fifth, the free and independent flow of information should be restored. Uh, a, re a, prerequisite, a prerequisite of any genuine domestic dialogue and participatory political process in Burundi is going to be the restoration of an independent media and protections of freedom of expression. Um, the US should call for the restoration of independent media outlets that have been closed by the Burundian government. And until that time, the United States should expand funding to the Voice of America, as well as networks of exiled Burundian journalists across the region who can help report on events inside of Burundi. Uh, the government of Burundi should be called upon to immediately release all journalists who have been arrested. And in the absence of any domestic means to investigate the harassment and violence against journalists, the United States should also sponsor independent fact-finding uh, missions by the, by the African Union and the United Nations regarding the circumstances and parties responsible for journalists who have been killed or imprisoned in the course of trying to do their job of informing the public. So in conclusion, uh, the crisis in Burundi today is political. It's manufactured by a relatively small number of individuals who don't want to play by the democratic rule book through which they came to power. And in the process, they're attempting to undermine the multi-ethnic uh, multi political framework that has been uh, taking hold in, in Burundi. So active international engagement at this point, it's going to be critical to restoring the Arusha Accords before the cycle of violence and fragmentation uh, accelerates to a point that uh, a solution becomes much more difficult and costly to Burundi, the region, and the international community. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Vakulin. Thank you, Chairman. 
Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to appear this afternoon on behalf of the International Crisis Group before the Senate Foreign Relations Africa Subcommittee to discuss the current political and security crisis in Burundi. We want to thank the chairman and members of the committee for calling U.S. attention to an already severe humanitarian crisis and one that has the potential for mass atrocities and regional destabilization. Crisis Group has been following developments in Burundi for almost uh, two decades, and we have warned repeatedly about this crisis building under President Pierre Nkurunziza, one with political origins, as it was said, but with clear ethnic undercurrents. The first phase of the present crisis began with the 2010 election. Those polls were a logistical success, but a political failure, leaving political institutions dominated by the ruling party. Immediately following those elections, the government launched a post-electoral campaign of extrajudicial killings and forced its main opponents out of the country. As a result, civil society and independent media became the only dissenting voices. And from 2010 to 2014, there was a steady polarization, socioeconomic uh, discontent, and further closing of political space. The second phase of the crisis uh, started in 2013 and centered on the growing evidence that President Nkurunziza intended to run for a third term, violating the Arusha Agreement. The third phase of the crisis started in April this year with a street protest against President Nkurunziza's candidacy for a third term. The present phase of the crisis, armed confrontation, corresponded with President Nkurunziza securing a third-term mandate in July after election that the African Union and the European Union decided not to observe because of political and security conditions in the country. Even beyond the humanitarian tragedy unfolding in Burundi, the regime now looks more and more like a failed police state. Regional spillover no longer is just a threat, as has been said, but a reality. The present patterns of violence are a reminder of what happened before the civil war broke out in 1993. For the Burundians, the story is repeating itself. This déjà vu feeling and the memories of the civil wars are the reason why more than 200,000 Burundians have left their country since the start of this year. One of the fundamental reasons why this crisis matters for Burundi, Africa, and the international community is that it challenges the Arusha Peace Agreement that was painstakingly negotiated during four years to bring peace to a country where 300,000 people had died. One of the most glaring failures of Arusha sponsors was not enforcing respect for the result of the international mediation. Mediation broke a deal for the return of the opponents in exile in 2013, with the view of making the 2015 elections inclusive. Special envoys from the US, the EU, Belgium, the UK, and other countries also enabled a dialogue led by the UN special envoy between the opposition and the government to try and bring peace during the street protest earlier this year. However, the aim of an inclusive electoral process was gutted by President Nkurunziza's insistence on running again. The mediation was officially handed over to the Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni, but there has been no progress. The resumption of an externally mediated dialogue is now the only option. The resumption 
the, 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 the decision of the U.S. government to support uh, uh, an, inter an international dialogue is at this stage very important. U.S. President uh, Barack Obama, 27 October decision to exclude Burundi from the African Growth and Opportunity Act is an important signal, but it's not enough. The African Union Peace and Security uh, Council has been most outspoken in demanding an end to violence, resumption of a facilitated dialogue, and threatening the use of an African Union intervention force. But the African Union members do not want to bypass President Museveni and the East African community. So right now, the Westerners are waiting for the African Union. The African Union is waiting for the President Museveni, and the people of Burundi are waiting for the end of violence. If there is no externally mediated dialogue, the likely scenarios include a new coup, the emergence of a guerrilla force in the countryside, and or a large-scale repression against the rebellious district of Bujumbura. Therefore, the resumption of a dialogue between the opposition and the government is absolutely essential. This implies the formation of an international mediation team supported by the US and the European Union with additional sanctions against those responsible for violence. The agenda of the internationally mediated dialogue should be open, but it should include the Arusha Agreement. If there is a need to halt atrocity and if an African Union-led peace implementation mission cannot be deployed quickly, the UN should be planning to bring MONUSCO Force Intervention Brigade into action. In addition, the African Union should be examining how it could replace Burundian troops in AMISOM if that becomes necessary. Uh, it also must be uh, stressed to Rwanda and Tanzania that they must play a constructive role in the, in the present crisis. The wet and see attitude of the international community during the past four years is part of the reason why the crisis has brought us to this point. There is now urgency for more coherent and determined international action to halt the country's further disintegration and prevent more violence within and beyond Burundi's border. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Now I'll turn to uh, uh, Vinny Nimuram. Let me pronounce it right. Nimuraba. Nimuraba. Got you. it. Thank you. Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Cardin, Member of the Subcommittee. Thank you for the invitation to appear here today to discuss the political and security crisis in Burundi. I thank also the School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason University. I am Burundian and I just returned. This testimony reflected the discussions I had with key stakeholders as well as common Burundian from all sides. Different people, different understanding of the crisis, different approaches to resolution. From the government perspective, a core pillar of the Arusha Accord is ethnic quotas, and these remain unquestionable by both government and opposition in Burundi. Virtually everyone agrees that it is still a good thing to have security forces made up of 50% Hutu and 50% Tutsi troops, although the population is actually divided into approximately 
85% Hutu and 14% Tutsi citizen. The government holds to the principle of 40% Tutsi and 60% Hutu staffers at any administrative leadership post in the country. Burundi's leadership has called upon the organizations, national and international, to check and make sure they respect those ethnic quotas to reflect the makeup of the population. One of the major achievements of the past 15 years is the power of unity over ethnic divisions. The Burundian people can distinguish ethnic groups from political and personal interests. It is widely agreed that Burundian people need peace. People in the countryside do not care about president terms or nuances of constitutional law. While some people want economic support, such as chemical fertilizers or seeds, others want jobs and equal opportunities. The capital city is the place where the political classes live. That may be the reason why there is violence now, and that has a lot to do with our own history. Current government leaders see Western countries as being denying the principles of democracy and sovereignty of Burundi. There is an underreported Cold War competition between two major powers, China and Russia on one side and the West on the other. Unexploited minerals, resources like nickel and uranium play a major role in that commercial conflict. The concept of genocide is being invented to show that the situation is chaotic and therefore call for external military intervention. It is, however, critical that atrocity prevention efforts take seriously the specific context in which violence is unfolding. The current government is not opposed to dialogue. Inclusive dialogue has started among all Burundians, and this dialogue will continue with members of the diaspora. However, the dialogue will not include people who were involved in the Fed coup of May 2015. In dealing with people involved on the protest. The first group made of underaged prisoner has been released and the Red Cross was in charge of bringing them back into their families. Yesterday, around 100 youth involved in the protest were released and the African Union was present at that release. People were released after completing a civic education program. This initiative will continue and needs to be supported. Finally, the government has issued strong requests that all people involved in the process of addressing the current crisis to visit the whole country and see how different little suburbs of Bujumbura look in comparison to other areas if they wish to write accurate report on Burundi. The opposition's major motivation to fight is unequal opportunities. There is some kind of collaboration between the youth who are fighting with some current like army forces. The only way peace can be restored is if opposition can be involved in the discussion and the dialogue which will be inclusive and that must take place in a safe zone. Religious leaders, especially the Catholic Church, are calling both parties to dialogue without pushing too hard. 
civil society operate under fear. Civil society requests the government to stop immediate acts of harassment, intimidation, and arbitrary detention against members of civil society, organizations, journalists, and other human rights activists and peace builders, as well as members of their families. Burundian civil society would like to see the establishment of an independent and rigorous inquiry in order to establish responsibility for violence observed in Burundi since April 2015. There is a problem in the new education system, bachelor's, master's, and doctorate, which was launched with insufficient studies in terms of implementation and transition from the previous system. Some week-long basic workshops were conducted to equip educators with skills to teach new courses such as English, Swahili, music, and arts, Educators themselves testify, however, that they did not learn enough to allow them to teach those courses adequately. The deteriorating education system is a real threat to security in Burundi. If young people do not have access to good education and consequently to good job, no matter how hard we work to address the current issue, violence will remain and will not cease. Rwanda has an active role in the Burundi crisis. Hopefully, the international community will request Rwanda to stop such tactics. Other countries such as Tanzania, DRC, and Uganda have also a major role to play, and they can really act and stop violence in Burundi. Some of the recommendations include the need to improve the economy, job creation, investment, and opportunities for youth, and other people who are able to work. Second, we should improve education program, both long term and short term with regard to peace education. Post-traumatic stress disorder is a continuing problem in Burundi. So third, we need to create a substantial program of trauma healing that will be implemented nationwide. This would also include non-violence activities and teaching. Some other suggestions, one, help the government disarm all militia regardless of political affiliation. Two, request the government to restore the freedom of expression, allowing, allowing private media to reopen. Three, allow civil society to operate freely and reopen soon the bank account that have been frozen for investigation purposes. This goes along with training of civil society personnel and journalists to improve their capacity for reporting and acting responsibly. Four, strengthen the African Union's human rights observers and require them to have toll-free funds to allow every Burundian to reach them and report misconduct. Five, urge the Burundian government to have conflict resolution experts working with the National Commission for Dialogue to focus on long-term goals and sustainability of peace in Burundi. Six, stern urge the Rwandan government not to continue its interference in the Burundian crisis and if necessary, put in place some sanctions against Rwanda. Seven, provide generous humanitarian support to all displaced and supported extensive campaign for refugees to return to Burundi once security is restored. Finally, pressure and sanctions will not work, but will radicalize parties to the conflict in Burundi. The US and the international community should look for other ways, other collaborative ways to address the current issue. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you again for your testimony. We've been joined by the ranking member, uh, Mr. Cardin, uh, Senator Cardin. So uh, let me ask a few questions before turning to him. Uh, Mr. Siegel, uh, in your prepared remarks, you mentioned that part of what might have motivated Nkurunziza to uh, run for re-election is uh, to move away or people encouraging them to move away from the Arusha Accords as they seem to uh, uh, be too harsh on the on the Houthis here. Um, if that is the case, uh, moving back to the Arusha Accords, is that going to satisfy uh, the, the president and his followers, um, or will the same underlying problems as they see them remain that this accord is too restrictive on their rights? Well, I think absolutely that's the central issue here that, um, you know, what we've seen really is a, a split within the ruling party, the CNDD-FDD. Um, and as with most of the major political parties in Burundi, there, since Arusha, there has been a commitment to a multi-ethnic political coalition building uh, approach to politics. And, and that is why there was some hope that uh, we would see a genuine transition this year. But I think, uh, you know, it has been uh, uh, over the, you know, over the last you're especially that hardliners in the CNDDFDT have resisted that transition. They, they, they do see um, uh, an opportunity to break out of Arusha, which has limited um, the, through the ethnic quotas, it's limited the um, influence that Hutus can have, and they feel that that's their rightful position to, um, to have. Uh, uh, a greater influence uh, within the party and, and outside. And so um, I think that's, that's exactly what uh, they're hoping for. You know, they, they want to uh, break Arusha, they, they want the third term, and then rewrite the political rules under the auspices of some sort of national dialogue, um, and, uh, and that way in a much, with a much, much stronger position for a hardline Hutu position. So I think absolutely they'll be resistant to, to moving back to Russia. Mr. Bakulin, uh, you mentioned that uh, the regional spillover in the conflict isn't just a threat, it's now a reality. Can you talk more about that uh, in terms of refugees and, and other, other issues in terms of the regional aspect of this uh, crisis? Thank you, Chairman. Um, indeed, there, as we, uh, we said, there are more than 200,000 refugees uh, in basically nine months. Um, Burundians who fled their, uh, their country, most of them uh, are in Western Tanzania. 70,000 of them are about are, uh, in Rwanda and the rest are between uh, Eastern Congo and Uganda. Uh, what we've seen uh, since the beginning of this refugee crisis is, uh, of course, uh, some uh, cross-border security problems that have increased uh, with uh, Rwanda, uh, also with the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, as it's been uh, said previously, uh, there have been some credible reports about recruitment in the refugee camps. Uh, so uh, that's the security problems that have already emerged. Uh, because of that security, that uh, refugee crisis. Of course, uh, there are also some very serious humanitarian problems. Um, there was an outbreak of uh, cholera in western Tanzania in June, July, 
uh, that was uh, fortunately contained by the humanitarian NGOs. But as the flow of refugee is going to increase, uh, we, uh, we are likely uh, to see uh, this kind of uh, epidemics to, to start again in Western Tanzania and also probably in, uh, in South Kivu. Uh, the other uh, very important humanitarian problem uh, that I must mention is food insecurity. Uh, Burundi is a country that, has, uh, uh, that is suffering for, from food insecurity for a long time now. And with this crisis, agricultural production is uh, declining in the country. And there are uh, reports uh, by humanitarian uh, organizations that uh, the people uh, have more and more troubles in the countryside uh, to, uh, to find food. Uh, so uh, I think the World Food uh, Program is already uh, making contingency plan for that. Mr. Nimrata, you had mentioned that uh, you would not advocate sanctions against the, the regime, or does that include travel sanctions against members of the regime, um, or economic sanctions, or what are you particularly warning against? I say that because sanctions really don't have any impact because people who are targeted rarely travel, that's first. And the second, when you approach somebody with sanctions, you, you don't approach him, you kind of put yourself aside. And then people, either from the opposition or from the ruling uh, the, the government, will be less likely to get involved in any kind of dialogue or conversation to find a common way. Because once somebody is already targeted, he will try to protect himself. As you can see in the Burundian history, we have many people who have been accused of many kind of mass atrocities and killings and human rights violations who have been protecting themselves. Some of the problems that we are facing comes from that aspect when people try to protect themselves. Once we add more sanctions, then they will keep other people around them to make sure they are really secured. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Siegel, I, I asked uh, Assistant Secretary Thomas Greenfield about the tipping point between political struggle and pure ethnic conflict. Um, when will we hit that tipping point, and uh, what are the warning signs that we ought to look for? Well, I think that is the tension that, that we're facing, and uh, I think as uh, Assistant Secretary uh, Thomas Greenfield mentioned, one of the noteworthy uh, observations about what's happened so far is the degree to which uh, Burundian society has largely resisted mm -hmm. going down that path. It's always underlying. It, it's the absolutely there. That well, dictates that it has. not only that, but I think that's the the government has actively tried to play it up. But I think it's important from an external engagement standpoint to recognize that many people in the opposition, including the Sonara um, uh, political alliance that's been created out of Addis Ababa, you know, they're mostly Hutu. These are people who were prominent within the CNDDFDD. And I think that becomes uh, a, you know, to the extent that the political opposition is seen as being multi-ethnic, it can help uh, diffuse the impulse to, to break down into those uh, ethnic, uh, uh, ethnic groupings. So I think, I think the, you know, the question will be, to what extent does the region international actors uh, uh, appear that they're going to help be a part of this process so that uh, in the end people 
on the ground don't feel that they have to revert back into those uh, um, categorizations. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Well, first, uh, I want to thank Senator Flake for calling this hearing. I guess most Americans would have a hard time finding Burundi on the map. And what's happening there is of great concern. And I think this hearing is extremely important uh, so that we understand uh, that there are people at risk every day and the numbers are growing. We put a great deal of confidence in the Arusha Accords because it dealt with some of the fundamental problems of the country, constitutional reform, protecting the rights of the minority, dealing with proper representation within the military, limitation on the terms of the president. Those, those provisions were, we think, not we, the international community felt were the framework for long-term peace in the country. There are lots of challenges, as you all point out, economic challenges, opportunities, neighbors. Uh, I understand the concern about sanctions, but there's also a concern about if you don't show some penalty for what people do, uh, that you just encourage that type of, of uh, horrible conduct. And we never want to jeopardize the delivery of humanitarian assistance when we can get delivery of humanitarian assistance. So we never look at those areas, but we do look at matters that can be empowering corruption and to make sure that we don't encourage that. I guess my question is, I was very disturbed, Mr. Siegel, when you said that the, the president's uh, desire to run for a third term and run for a third term was in a way to undo the Arusha uh, Accord. Uh, he, of course, after that, he then instituted many repressive practices within the country, uh, uh, taking away the rights of many of the, of the people of the region. And now, if he's rewarded by the reconfiguration uh, of the Arusha Accords, it seems to me that's not the way we move forward. So I'm trying to figure out how do we bring about peace for Burundi, protecting the integrity of what was behind the Arusha Accords, so that at the end of the day, those who are responsible for the atrocities are not rewarded, and there is some hope for long-term stability in the country. So try to give me a roadmap as to how you see us moving forward. What's happened has happened. Uh, I, for one, do not want to give up on the Arusha Accords. How do, what, what are the most important immediate steps to be taken to end the, uh, the risk factors for the population and to get us back into a framework where we can have a, a lasting peace in the country? <clears throat> Give me your priority. What are the first two or three things we have to do? I'll start, and then I'm sure my co-panelists will, will, will want to add in. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, what we, we want to be doing is both offering a roadmap as well as putting pressure on the government. I think it's, it's clearly evident over the past... Um, and the roadmap is not the Arusha Accord, or it is? The road, uh, Arusha is the, is the framework. Uh, I think the, the, when I talk about roadmap, how do you get back to Arusha? Okay. So Arusha is the goal, it's the, it's the framework. We've, we've veered off of that. So how do you get back onto that? 
uh, and it, it's clear with all the decisions that um, uh, Mr. Nukurenziza and his um, uh, allies have made over the last nine months that they're willing to take the country you know, down the tubes um, in order to try to retain their hold on power. Mm -hmm. So they're only going to respond to strong pressure. So what's that strong pressure? Well, I think there are several things. First is I think we do need to more actively support um, a move towards a transitional government um, that they, that the current Burundian government isn't seen as the focal point for the political dialogue in, in Burundi. That um, as we've seen at Burkina Faso and Mali and Guinea, that there needs to be a technocratically based political uh, or government that's comprising all parties whose goal it will be to bring us back to a point of elections that will um, allow for a resumption of it. I follow that, but what pressure can the international community bring to bear to cause the government to move in that direction? There's a couple of other things that I would put out there. One is, again, a push for a peacekeeping force mm -hmm. that um, uh, we were talking about this in the, in the earlier panel um, for uh, you know, a potential Chapter 7 um, mandate for a peacekeeping force to go into uh, Burundi. Um, uh, I think, uh, again, if the, if the regional international community demonstrates enough commitment, uh, that force uh, wouldn't have to be a peace enforcement force. I think they could be sent in as peacekeepers to keep the sides uh, away from each other. I think it's important to keep in mind the conflict in, in Burundi right now, it's not uh, a typical conflict of two you know, uh, organized armed factions. These are um, hit and run types of attacks, they're assassinations. And so an early strong uh, international uh, military presence can help provide a, a buffering influence. And it will then also isolate the, the Burundian government. I think the, the role of the ICC is important here too. Um, and we already saw with the, um, uh, with the open letter sent by ICC uh, um, prosecutor uh, indicating that actions taken in, uh, in Burundi, the inflammatory language that was being used would um, be highly scrutinized and be used as evidence in any subsequent ICC uh, investigation. And I think, uh, uh, making that clear that there are going to be costs to be paid will be another way of exerting pressure. Thank you. With respect to everybody's analysis, I would like to kind of say that I strongly disagree with this idea of having a transitional kind of government because if you see how the current government has been trying to work kind of hard and to keep its own positions even when the situation was not really easy, I don't think this will work. Suggesting this brings back to another civil war and a worse than what we are seeing now. For me, a good approach is first to start by us. What do we do is to change the approach as I say it. Not to issue statement, but to go in a kind of nice way to request we really need 
A, B, C from you, the government. And those kind of requests that we bring to the government can be to integrate people from the opposition. We have many people in Rwanda, in Brussels, and everywhere who are really strong leaders. If you can negotiate with them in a nice way, because we are dealing with people who have been fighting for more than 20 years. I mentioned the aspect of post-traumatic something like that. We need to make sure we understand that kind of where everything comes back. If we approach them in a nice way and then request them to do some kind of concessions, that will allow us not only to have those people fearing for their security to come back to Burundi and also to be integrated in the government. And that will really reduce the tensions. And that's one side. For the other side, I talk to people who are fighting. The major concern for them is to be able to survive economically. If we have along that kind of line of effort, if we have some kind of in economic incentive to call them and to bring them to work and to give them some kind of job, that would really help to move forward. But if you see how hard the positions are, I don't think any transition will really work. Thank you. Mr. Bercon. Um, Senator, in terms of priority action, I think uh, uh, the dialogue, the international mediated dialogue is very important and this dialogue must be an opportunity to discuss the Arusha agreement. Um, can elaborate on that later. Uh, I for the purposes of modifying? Uh, of making some adjustments and changes. I think the uh, Arusha agreement indeed has been the stumbling block of, uh, of peace and of the new regime. But uh, I've been in conversation with the people from the ruling party uh, over the past five years, and they have always been very clear, their view has always been very clear about the fact that uh, this is now a 15 years old peace agreement and the political uh, situation has changed in the country. So they always wanted to make that ad some adjustments. I think that sometimes conflict starts because a conversation uh, does not happen. And actually what I think has, has been missing in Burundi over the past five years is that conversation about the Arusha agreement. And I think if we want to have lasting peace in Burundi, we have to facilitate uh, this discussion and to find a, a middle ground between those who want to make a, a changes and adjustments to the Arusha agreement and those who want to keep it. It's clear that there are some key principles in the Arusha agreement that must not be changed. And I think that one of those, uh, the, probably the most important provisions in the Arusha agreement are those who haven't been implemented. And I'm thinking about the justice provision of the Arusha agreement because the provisional, uh, I mean, a lot of uh, political leaders in uh, Burundi now, and I think it's very important to uh, know that, uh, benefit from uh, provisional amnesties, and therefore the crime of the civil wars have never been addressed. I, I fully agree with the idea of, uh, of a peacekeeping force and the planning for a peacekeeping force, and uh, MONUSCO, the largest uh, peacekeeping force in the world, is just at the border of, uh, of Burundi. Uh, of course, the US government can help uh, to identify those who are responsible for the violence uh, and, and uh, um, adopt some targeted sanctions, but I think there is one leverage that is at this stage very important. Uh, it is the participation of the Burundian army to the AMISOM uh, mission in Somalia. 
Uh, and I think uh, this is a very important leverage uh, given the number of troops and uh, given uh, the uh, financial support that uh, Burundi gets uh, for that mission. I think this leverage uh, should also be used. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Vakula, um, talk, talking again about the regional uh, aspect of this, uh, is the United States playing a constructive role uh, in making sure that this doesn't uh, spill over any further into the region? And uh, if not, what could we be doing more? Well, I think the, the United States uh, has, uh, has been uh, quick to, uh, to look at the situation in Burundi. Uh, unfortunately, I think some of the statements that were made at the beginning of this year by, by, uh, by the United States uh, should have been made a bit earlier. Uh, but uh, now I think it's very important uh, that the, uh, the administration uh, keeps talking to all the stakeholders in the region and I think keeps uh, uh, helping the African Union to uh, be in charge of the mediation. Uh, there is clearly a diplomatic impasse at the moment between the African Union and the East African community. Uh, as it was said, President Museveni is in charge of the mediation, but this mediation doesn't seem to go anywhere. But there's still a reluctance, actually, to transfer the mediation. I think the uh, United States should advise uh, and help uh, for the transfer of that mediation from President Museveni to the African Union. Uh, and as I said, I think it's better to have a, a collective mediation led by the African Union. But uh, it's clear that uh, uh, on the diplomatic side, the United States can uh, help convince some stakeholders to transfer the mediation from President Museveni to uh, the African Union. All right. Let me just drill down a little further and when you're talking about uh, going back into the Arusha Accords um, and uh, adjusting. Uh, is. It can only be really the 60-40 kind of split. Is that what you're talking about? Um, or the term limits on the president? Or what, uh, what aspects of the Arusha Accord are most critical to adjust in terms of the ruling party? And there, is that, is that, are those two items that they're really concerned about? Well, um, I think they're very concerned about, um, indeed, the fact that uh, you have that 60-40 uh, uh, percentage rule, uh, indeed, but uh, also about um, the 50-50 uh, percent rule in the security forces. Uh, we must uh, remember that actually some counting uh, has been, uh, has been uh, done uh, recently uh, concerning the number of Hutus and Tutsis in the security services. Uh, it indicates uh, maybe the warning signs you were uh, referring uh, later, uh, earlier, sorry, uh, about the uh, ethnic uh, dimension of that conflict. Uh, so it's, it's very important, I think, to address those, uh, those issues and not uh, just to push them aside and saying that they must not be taken into consideration. Uh, it's been a very uh, long-term claim uh, by uh, the CNDD, FDD uh, rulers uh, to, uh, re to review that, uh, that uh, agreement, and uh, they tried to do it with a constitutional review in 2014 and, uh, and didn't manage to do it. Uh, so I think it's instead of them dismantling 
cling the, the accord, which is what they have been starting doing for many years. And we wrote a report in 2012 uh, that was titled Bye Bye Arusha uh, to explain that process. So instead of having them dismantling the accord uh, de facto and uh, trying to impose a constitutional review uh, next year, I think it would be much better to have uh, a consensual discussion, uh, to have a discussion to reach a consensus about what must be adjusted and, and changed in, uh, in this agreement. And of course, uh, this can only be decided by the Burundian stakeholders themselves. So I think the role of the international community should just be to facilitate uh, this discussion. Dr. Siegel, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. Um, first, I would uh, reiterate that it, the, the equipment to Arusha was actually quite strong within the CNDD, FDD. And there were 130 uh, senior officials within the party who wrote up a, a, a petition to Pierre Nkurunziza uh, in April um, uh, uh, you know, requesting that he don't seek a th third term and that he respect the terms of the Arusha Accord. So when we talk about people wanting to break out of Arusha, it isn't the entire party, it's, it's the remnants mm. of the CNDD, FDD. It's the hardliners that want this. And we have to recall that even back into the early stages of the negotiation in the 2000s, there were members and entities within CNDD, FDD, they didn't want to sign. They were late in signing. And so there's always been resistance, and that will, um, that will continue to be there. But I think within the Burundi society writ large, there's actually quite a lot of pride in the Russia Accords. And it has provided them a pathway for a multi-ethnic democratic society. And we see that within the political sphere, we see that within civil society, and, and we see it within the military which has made great progress um, in, in, in moving towards a multi-ethnic and professional force. So I think, you know, by and large, the, you know, the, the benchmark within Burundi society more generally is very supportive of Arusha, um, and they see this as, as a way to move past the ethnic politics of the past. You know, uh, and, and, I, and I do think that there is concern when we talk about reopening Arusha, that's exactly what the government will want to do. And it, it's a, um, I think, a very clever negotiating tactic. Let's have a national dialogue. Let's talk about things we need to change. And you know, the real goal there is to water down uh, these terms that have helped move the country forward. And you know, I, would, I would add to uh, what Terry mentioned that you know, in addition to the justice sector, you know, the one, the, the, one of the major flaws, or one of the things missing in Arusha was that the police, the intelligence services, mm -hmm. the gendarmerie were not included. So they have remained politicized, and, and those are the mechanisms that the government has used to try to push forward its political agenda. Yes, Terry. Um, Chairman, uh, indeed, I can, I can only agree with Dr. Siegel. Uh, the whole CNDD-FDD party uh, was not against the uh, Arusha agreement. 
Uh, I think the problem now is that uh, most of the moderates uh, have left the, the ruling party, and those who are uh, in control of those parties now uh, are, are opposed to the uh, Arusha agreement and its principles. So uh, I don't want to, um, I don't know that there are any uh, misinterpretation or misunderstanding about what I said previously. I think it's important to have that discussion about, uh, that the Burundians have that discussion about the Arusha agreement that they didn't have really before. Uh, and I think, of course, uh, it must be done in a consensual way. And uh, the outcome of that discussion must be, of course, a consensus among all the, the stakeholders. Uh, I think uh, the CNDD, FDD uh, rulers have often mentioned that they were not at the negotiation table when the uh, accord was uh, negotiated uh, uh, between uh, 96 and 2000. And uh, therefore, uh, that's very often the reason why they say, well, uh, we were not part of that negotiation and we, we don't like some of the provision of the, uh, of the accord. So this must be taken into consideration if we want to have a substantial dialogue about uh, this crisis in Burundi. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I think there are some kind of issues that we don't discuss, but which are really more important. Because when we, are d we try to deal with the current issue, we need to see where we are and the kind of forces that we are facing. And coming back to the Arusha Accord, I think it's clear that I don't ignore the kind of manipulation that have taken place for the past year. But the issue was not the Arusha Accord, but the interpretation of the Arusha Accord in terms of terms. If the opposition and the ruling party agree on several kind of aspect articles of that Arusha Accord, the only issue was the interpretation. And the problem where came the manipulation was when the Constitution Court decided after you know what happened and they decided that he had the right to run. That's the main issue. And now we need to see how to move forward with that aspect. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Uh, appreciate uh, the testimony that's been given. This will help us as we uh, formulate policy and uh, move forward and work with the State Department and the administration on U.S. policy uh, toward Burundi and the region. So appreciate it. Um, for the purposes of uh, members or, and their staff here, the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. So as they submit these questions, if you could answer promptly, that would be uh, appreciated and that will be a part of the record. Uh, with the thanks of the committee, this stands adjourned.